0: Today we're going to continue into our study of the book of Revelation. We are now firmly into chapter 16. Last week we had covered some history or background of chapter 16. Of course, chapter 6, we're getting into what people think is some of the fun stuff. And now we're getting into the tribulation itself. And of course, in a very brief review, now that we've covered this first section, we're going to move on from it. But in a very brief review, the book of Revelation ties together everything that comes before it in the Bible doesn't present new material. It ties together all the loose ends, so to speak. Again, as I shared with you last week, there's a little difference in the Jewish eschatological table versus what we know as Christian. Uh, the Jews, obviously, are looking for these, the appearance of Messiah. But there are two very different appearances of Messiah. One, Zechariah chapter 9, one, Zechariah chapter 14. So as the Jews see things, they are back in the land. They're looking forward to one day where the coming of the Messiah. Uh, that's where the confusing part is. You've got this suffering servant. Then you've got this king of kings. They do know that Daniel told them there was going to be seven years leading up to what they call the age of the Messiah, the messianic age, uh, the thousand years of Shabbat, or what we call the millennial reign of Christ. Now you've heard the term times of the Gentiles. There's a difference between times of the Gentiles and fullness of the Gentiles. Times of the Gentiles is this period, beginning in 606, where Israel became subjugated to Gentile powers. From 606 until 1947, Israel didn't exist as an autonomous, uh, self-existing entity. They were subject to Gentiles. Quite frankly, they still are, as they're having to deal with all of our nonsense about what they can and cannot do to Hamas in defense of their own people. In fact, I I had a new video come in this week for our friend Brian Sharp. I should have loaded it on here, shared it with you. I may may try to share it with you Wednesday night. But uh, they're systematically going through Gaza and and taking out Hamas. They cannot continue to exist side by side with Hamas. Uh, But anyway, we are in this period of time right here, the church age. This would be called the fullness of the Gentiles, according to the Apostle Paul. The times of the Gentiles is from the last king of the seed of David until the next king of the seed of David rules and reigns from the throne of David. This in between, from Zechariah nine, just by simple definition, the period of time between Zechariah nine and Zechariah 14.1 is what we call Bible prophecy. That's what all the debates and all the books are about. Has this already happened? Is it yet to happen Uh, What are they talking about? And then of course, specifically from chapter 6 through chapter 19, we are dealing with this period here, this seven years. And of course, that's what John says. John is coming to give us some insight as to the great and terrible day of the Lord. So it's not talking about John being in church as a one-man church on Sunday. This is John, as the last living apostle, being given a detailed vision of the great and terrible day of the Lord, the seven years of tribulation leading up into the millennial reign of Christ. And of course, we know that it is a prophecy, and of all the books of the Bible, this is the only one that has the audacity to promise you a special blessing if you read it and study it. Which, of course, as I say and will say many times today, the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. The only way you study the book of Revelation and know it is to know what the Old Testament says. Because all the terminology, or almost all of it, is predetermined or defined in the Old Testament. So we will eliminate 90% of your questions as we go through this study. And there are a few that there's still some debate on, but 90% will be cleared up as we go through this study. Again, uh, Revelation is outlined. John is told to write what you've seen. That's a picture of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. Write about the things which are. That's the church age. Those seven churches, specifically in that order, representative of this prophetical period, ...called the church age, and then what shall be hereafter, after these things. Chapter 4, verse 1, we had a picture of the rapture as you compare the use of phrase and terminology from Ephesians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15 to what's said here in Revelation 4, 1. It's very easy to draw the similarities... Chapters 4 and 5, we see a picture of heaven, and in particular, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy that was given in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and received for Himself the title deed to planet Earth. Dominion, glory, kingdom, people, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. And of course that's corroborated in Revelation 11 verse 15 where it says that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. As our kinsman redeemer, He is taking this seven-sealed document and He is the only one that has their credentials that can open it And He does, and that's what we get into. So again, chapter 6 through 19, is the tribulation period. Chapter 20, we see a picture of the uh, uh, millennium, the great white throne judgment. Chapter 21 and 22, we see the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Now, chapter 6, we're going to be introduced to these four characters, uh, what are called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And as we saw last week, when you cross-reference this and go back to Zechariah 1 And Zechariah 6, we can see this same characters identified and defined. They are sent from the throne of God, so they are actually part of God's judgment. They are sent to patrol the earth. They are displeased with the Gentiles' uh, uh, point of view that the world does better without the existence of God's chosen people. And they are in fact dispatched in order to judge the world and to appease God's anger. Now, we're going to see at the end of chapter 6 where it talks about the great men and the poor men of the earth alike hiding in caves, asking the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. People are going to try to tell you that part of this is man's wrath against man, and then part of this is is God's supernatural wrath, as if the great tribulation is only the vials that are poured out at the end. Well, I disagree with that. This entire seven years, according to Daniel 9, is a period dealing with God's chosen people, Israel, and preparing them to be His, uh, His representative nation on earth. And God has always used nations to punish other nations. So even though in the early part of Revelation, we don't see the water being turned to blood or, or stars falling from the sky... What we do see is God's judgment being brought out as God uses man to judge man. Here's some examples. Ezekiel 29, God speaks of the, using Babylon. Behold, I will bring a sword upon thee. Well, what sword is that, Lord? Uh, it's talking about the sword of Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel chapter 30, And I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in Nebuchadnezzar's hand and I will break Pharaoh's arm." So in this particular verse, God says He's going to use Babylon to inflict judgment on Egypt. Well, whose sword is that? Well, it's God's sword. He's putting it in Nebuchadnezzar's hand and using him for this judgment. Ezekiel 33, "...Son of man, speak to the children of thy people, and say unto them, when I bring the sword upon a land." All right, now to the Jews, they looked out over the horizon, they saw the Babylonian army coming from the north and surrounding the city they might conclude that that was uh, Nebuchadnezzar bringing the invasion. However, God tells us through Ezekiel that it's actually him. He's the one that called for a sword. So these judgments throughout the book of Revelation, all of it is God's wrath being poured out on planet Earth. So with that brief background, as we went into great detail last week to look at Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 6, let's now get into these four horsemen of the Apocalypse And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. So this is Jesus. He's the one that was worthy to fulfill the requirements on the outside of the scroll. These seven seals, this legal document, this official document, He begins to uh, uh, cut those seals. In fact, I've got a signet ring here. You know, I'd forgotten I had this. I I wear it on Sundays. But it's actually the Blair family crest. Uh, When Cindy and I got married... We actually dripped some gold wax on the invitation envelopes and used the seal to seal the envelope with the Blair family crest. That's the way they used to do things, to seal something was done in this same fashion. So I thought I'd mention that as we were passing by here. So he had seven seals, these sevenfold witness, those that made the agreement, those that bore witness to it of this legal document. Jesus, of course, being the kinsman redeemer that's going to redeem all of his creation not just humanity, but the earth and all of creation in addition. Uh, he is the only one that was worthy or was qualified to take the, the scroll from the Ancient of Days hand, God the Father's hand, and to execute the, the uh, necessary uh, uh, agreements in order to redeem the land. All right. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw. And I beheld a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So the seal was opened. We heard the sound of rolling thunder. What happens here in Oklahoma when you hear rolling thunder? What do you know? You know there's a storm that's coming, and that's what was being indicated. There was the first storm coming, and the command, come and see. Now, the imagery here is not of a conquering general riding on a white horse in triumph. He's not wearing a diadem, which in the Greek, diadem means a ruling crown. Then there's also the Stephanos, which is a victor's crown or victor's laurels. Normally, this would be some sort of greenery, but oftentimes it would be gold shaped like greenery and wrapped around the head as victor's laurels. And that's the case here. Matter of fact, the text even uh, reaffirms and says clearly that the intent of this writer is to go forth to conquering and to conquer. Well, who could this writer be? Is it Jesus? No. We'll see Jesus show up with many diadems in Revelation 19, many ruling crowns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But this is the pseudo Christ, the Antichrist, who will imitate Jesus matter of fact, Jesus said in His first coming, I come in My Father's name, and you receive Me not. Yet if another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. And that's exactly what's going to happen. This first rider carries a bow, but no arrows. That's like having a gun and not having any bullets in it. You're not going to get much done that way. So he's not conquering by war, but he's conquering through promises of peace. Let's cross-reference into the Old Testament and see some predictive verses. It says in Daniel chapter nine, talking about the 70th week of Daniel, and after 62 weeks shall Messiah come forth. So you've got seven weeks, then 62 weeks, a total of 69. But not for Himself, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood unto the end of the war. Desolations are determined. And he, being the Antichrist, shall confirm this peace treaty with many for one week. So there's going to be a seven-year peace treaty that has Israel right in the middle of it. And of course, we know it says the next verse that in the midst of this week that he's going to break the deal. He's going to infiltrate the temple and demand that he be worshipped as God. Daniel chapter 8, And through his policy also he shall cause craft or witchcraft to prosper in his hand. By the way, when you see all that's being done in our country right now, it it is not just, it is not just, boy, it's not even bad political policy. It's satanic policies that are being uh, uh, bred out there these days. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. So this is a common character trait that we see of the Antichrist, that he is going to come and he is going to conquer, not through war, but through promises of peace. We know that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, you don't have need that I write unto you, for you know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, when they, not you, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them... And again, we see the metaphor of a woman uh, in pregnancy, in birth pains, labor pains. And in fact, Daniel also adds this uh, in, a, a mess, in a prophecy about the Antichrist, uh, a type, an anti-type. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So here's what's going to happen. You're going to see a smooth-talking super politician, that he's going to come to power not as a red devil with a pitchfork and horns, but he's going to come as an angel of light. In fact, I believe that the battle uh, that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 uh, that I will call World War III, I think that's going to pave the way for his arrival, but we'll talk about more of that, and more about that in just a moment. So the first seal is this one conquering through peace, riding on the white horse. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast, or that that living creature, those four living creatures, those cherubim around the throne, saying, "Come and see." And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take great peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So we find that this peace was short-lived, followed quickly by violence. Let me insert my parenthetical insert. We're going to learn more about parenthetical inserts next week. But eschatologically, there are a number of, bi- of battles that are, are yet to come. But there are two primary battles that I think box in uh, the seven-year tribulation. We see in Ezekiel 38, the battle that's commonly called the battle of Gog and Magog, which I believe will come at the beginning of the tribulation. And then we see Armageddon, which is talked about in Zechariah, in Joel, in Isaiah, and Revelation. Clearly, it's the, the war that ends all wars. That's the one that Jesus appears in, leading the host of heaven and sets foot down on the Mount of Olives to destroy all the enemies of Israel. Now, the battle that's outlined in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is clearly not the same battle as Armageddon. One, you have a limited list of nations that participate. And we, we also will see that the Messiah is going to supernaturally reveal Himself as still being there on behalf of Israel in some way. Now, we don't know whether it's going to be a supernatural act of God uh, uh, clearly coming from heaven or whether it's going to be God calling for a sword. Now, I just showed you those passages a moment ago of how God used the expression, He called for a sword when He was speaking of Nebuchadnezzar to come down and inflict punishment either on Egypt or on Israel. But that same terminology is used in Ezekiel 38, verse 21. It says that He calls for a sword against these attacking armies. You'll also learn as you study the, this uh, this affiliation, Ezekiel 38, 39, That is primarily led by a coalition that would include uh, Iran, Turkey, and Russia, or at least southern Russia. Interesting that we see so much about those three in the news today. They believe they were overconfident. They believe that they're going to come down on the land of Israel to take a spoil. And again, there is an argument. I, I could see the possibility of a limited thermonuclear exchange which I believe also would give great cover for the question, where did all the people go? You know, if the rapture took place almost coinciding with this battle and that there was a thermonuclear exchange between say, Washington DC and Moscow and Tehran and and certain other cities, uh, obviously there would be a whole lot of people missing. And it could cause some confusion as to whether what had just happened, and would provide some plausible cover or explanations uh, to explain away where all the people went. But after World War I, it was called the War to End All Wars, and man established the League of Nations, which obviously, it was not the War to End All Wars. After World War II, man established the United Nations, which quite frankly, as we now know, without question, Alger Hiss, who was a spy of Stalin, who was a communist, was our American representative and the first president of the United Nations. The UN's whole goal was to inflict global communism. They are not the good guys and we need to get out of the United Nations uh, if we can. Um, If I was president, we would be out of the United Nations, but there's no fear of that happening. I will not be president. Uh, I, I can't even win Homeowners Association president, much less but we see the absence. We see peace first. This super politician again, and I'm going to use the name. Think of Barack Obama. Remember in 2008, Mr. Hope and Change. He was almost deified. I mean, you remember that? He's almost deified on stage in the presence, and he'd always talk with his nose lifted in the air. And he was this super politician that mesmerized the world through his words. Well, that's what this next guy is going to be. He's going to be the consummate politician. But the peace won't last long, and I'm going to explain why. Now, one of my references, Hebrew Insights of Revelation, they make this observation. It's interesting, because I was already going down this path, and we're almost identical. The authority that God gave this writer was to bring cessation of peace on earth, causing war between residents, between one neighbor and another. This is not a war with foreign conquerors. This is a civil war. Now, it's interesting. This was a Jewish messianic expositor of Scripture. He doesn't think this is going to be nation against nation, as like what led up to Gog and Magog, that battle. He thinks it's going to be a civil war between people. Now, you look in our country, and we are on the brink of civil war. And I'm not speaking as a figure of speech. I mean literally. But here's what I think this is. I think this is disarming the populace, for your well being. You know, we're gonna do if we get rid of guns and we'll stop all crimes. It's amazing how this gun never commits a crime. Isn't it amazing? It's almost amazing like my car never goes out drunk driving. I don't have an explanation for any of that. I guess it must be one of the lucky ones. I happen to buy a model that didn't go drunk driving. Folks, that's nonsense. But you see, that's the that's the that's the humanist view. Uh, man the Bible says that man is inherently sinful. And unless we have proper government beginning with self-government, a heart surrendered to Christ, we are going to fail and wind up in sin. The humanist says that man is perfectible, and it's not man's fault. You're a victim. By the way, how many times do you see, in counseling, that is a key red flag. Whenever somebody says, "Oh, I feel," or you would do the same thing, that's bull. It's just trying to justify your own actions. But uh, the, the or, or say, I'm a victim of such and such. In fact, that's what Freud taught. Freud taught, you were screwed up by your parents. It's not your fault. Um, 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 in, oh, good grief. Who was, um, oh, I just went blank. I'll think of it, but it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, another man uh, put forth the theory that you're a victim of your circumstances, your environment. Well, you know, the Bible says, no, it's you. You need to change you. Uh, but uh, the, the humanist says, it's not your fault. You're a victim. And if we change the environment, then it could be utopia. That's the whole argument behind communism. If we had equality, if everybody had the same amount of money, then there'd be no uh, selfishness, no greed, or no anything, and we'd have utopia. No, that never works that way. And the other is that if we got rid of the guns, because it's not the man's fault, it's the gun's fault. If we got rid of the guns, then we'd have peace. Well, they're going to use that same argument after World War III to disarm the populace. And then... Once the people can no longer defend themselves, well, let's look historically. The Soviet Union established gun control in 1929. From 1929 to 1953, 20 million, at least, political dissidents unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. 1911, Turkey established gun control. From 1915 to 1917, one and a half million Armenians unable to defend themselves. Armenian Christians were rounded up and exterminated. In Germany, 1938, guns owned by the people were made illegal. 1939 to 1945, 13 million Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, mentally ill people, and other mongrelized peoples unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. 1935, China established gun control. From 1948 to 1952, 20 million, at least 20 million, some as high as 80 million, political dissidents unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. 1964, Guatemala established gun control. From 64 to 81, 100,000 Mayan Indians unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. 1970, Uganda established gun control. From 71 to 79, 300,000 Christians unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. 1956, Cambodia established gun control. 1975 to 1977, 1 million educated people unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. Thomas Jefferson said this, No free man shall ever be debarred from the use of arms. The strongest reason for the people to retain the right to keep and bear arms as a last resort is not to hunt bear and deer, but to protect themselves against the tyranny in government. Alexander Hamilton said... But if the circumstances should at any time oblige the government to form an army of any magnitude, that army can never be formidable to the liberties of the people. Why, there is a large body of citizens, little if at all inferior to them in discipline and the use of arms, who stand ready to defend their rights. George Mason, one of the, the, the richest men in the colonies, uh, said this the uh, Constitutional Convention in 1788, uh, or this is the Massachusetts, or excuse me, the Virginia Convention. When the resolution of enslaving America was formed in Great Britain, the British Parliament was advised to disarm the people, that it was best and most effective way to enslave them, but that they should not do it openly, but weaken them and let them sink gradually by totally disusing and neglecting the militia. So once disarmed, then man cannot defend himself and is helpless to resist an oppressor. And in every communist revolution in history, supposedly those that are there for the people, trying to take care and represent the people, disarm the working-class man, and then at that point, the working-class man is forever crushed under the boot of tyranny by his ruling Lord in government. Well, verse 6 tells us that this would be followed by the rider on a third uh, the, on the black horse, or the third seal broken, has a pair of balances in his hand. And when he opened the third seal... I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and behold, a black horse, and he sat upon him, had a pair of balances in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. What's this talking about? Well again, scripture is the best commentary on scripture. Leviticus twenty six prophesied this in case of disobedience, I have broken the staff off your bread Ten women shall bake their bread in one oven, and they shall deliver you your bread again by weight or by rationing it, by weighing out, because there will not be enough. This is a sign of of hyperinflation, famine. You're actually having to ration your food and water daily. As a matter of fact, the descriptions you just saw in the verse about wheat and barley would be you work all day for just enough food to feed yourself and your horse. Well, you know what? When you work all day and all you have is just enough sustenance to get you overnight to the next day, you have become a slave and that's all that communism is. We see in Ezekiel chapter 4 again, I will break the staff of bread, and notice the same terminology. They shall eat bread by weight. They shall ration it with care. And they'll look around and be astonished at what they see around them, the starving amongst themselves. Now folks, this strikes me. When we went through the grocery store at times during COVID, and I got to the cereal aisle or the bread aisle and saw it wiped out completely, it shook me. Never have I seen that kind of disruption of supply in America. We are just that spoiled. And after a few months of starvation, the Jews were sitting around inside the walls in Jerusalem looking at each other going, how in the world did this happen? And that's what's going to be the situation here with the third seal. Now, coincidentally, I've got a few videos. We're going to only make it through this third seal, but that's okay. We're not in a race. We'll pick up next week. In case you haven't noticed, you're going to be hearing a lot about this. So I'm going to show you a few videos. Now this first uh, Wall Street Journal article goes back to 2009. Billionaires try to shrink the world's population. Now we get into the next seal, we're going to see these four judgments that God uses to inflict punishment on man. And it tells us that 25% of the world's population is going to die at this particular period in the tribulation. I just want you to be aware that we've got a lot of these global leaders that just got done meeting in Davos last week that say we need to reduce the world's population from 8 billion to 500 million. Yeah, let that sink in for a minute. This is not Austin Powers. This is not a bad James Bond movie. These guys really control the world's economy and they really are having this discussion. Let's f- hear from a few of these experts at the World Economic Forum. So in
1: the session we just attended here at the Economic Forum, I think there was a sense of relief, actually, in your frankness. Um, you brought up some issues that, that others are reluctant That's my to trouble. bring up.
2: Always, <laughs> <laughs> All the religious groups are against me because I'm talking about population. They want more souls. I want less on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> For example, I'm picking on agriculture because it is the biggest land user and also biggest water user on the planet. The way we eat is ecologically disastrous. The way we dress is ecologically disastrous because the third largest polluter on the planet is textiles. Most people don't know this. So everything that we do has become violent in the world, the very way we exist. In the beginning of 20th century, we were just about 1.5 billion people. Today, we are 7.3 billion people. The United Nations making predictions that by 2050, we will be 9.7 billion people. 9.7 billion people or nearly 10 billion people on this planet is for sure going to be a disaster. I was in a conference and uh, I said, see, unless you... (laughs) unless you reduce the human footprint on the planet, there is no solution for anything. Then they asked me a brilliant question. How do you reduce the human footprint? I said, you have to reduce the number of feet. (laughs) That's the only way... (laughs) We can take it upon ourselves that we will not push the human population. You can have a dog. I am not saying children are bad, they are wonderful. But it's just too many. We as human beings, we are wonderful, but we are too many. We are so many that the insect population is going down. No, no, it's not a joke. It's very, it's very threatening. If the insect population disappears, the planet will be destroyed. Yes, the worms disappear, the planet will be destroyed. If you and me disappear, planet will
0: flourish. Did you hear that? If the insects disappear, the planet will be destroyed. If you and me disappear, the planet will flourish. Humanity has too much of a footprint on planet Earth. How do you do something about that? You reduce the number of feet. What is that saying? Eliminate people. That was at the World Economic Forum last week. You There's have some one. thoughts Jane about Goodall, the population. Woman.
2: As a driver beneath all of these things that we're talking about, um, what should be done about population?
3: For a long time, it was considered politically incorrect to even mention it. And most of the big uh, conservation organizations refused to mention it. But I always thought, I mean, you see what happens in the old days. There were cultures in a lot of these indigenous people. And you had lots of children because they looked after you in your old age. And you shared out the land. But now it's different. And they know it's different. And that's why there were bare hills all around Gombe. So we... We've introduced, in our program, we've introduced family planning so welcomed by the people because they know that things are different. And, of course, this administration is cutting family planning around the developing world, which is terrifying to me. And so if you approach family planning right, it's something that's very, very important. And when it was considered politically incorrect to mention it, and I was determined to mention it, I decided to call it Voluntary Population Optimization. <laughs> so by the time people worked it out.
2: And research shows educating girls is one of the yeah, smartest I things. I meant to
3: say that, yes, indeed. Uh, women's education, empowering women, and scholarships to keep girls in school beyond puberty. Family size then tends to drop worldwide indeed.
0: Rat protiv poljoprivrednika je započeo u people have no clue that agriculture contributes about 33% of all the emissions of the world. We can't get to net zero unless agriculture
4: is front and center. They want me to produce less nitrogen. So what does that mean? How many cows are you going to have left? Steaks. We have to uh, reduce half. Would you be able to do that? I don't know. You can see the attack on farmers all over the world. It's an agenda that is being pushed through government's officials in prospective countries. We live in fear. What are they going to do next to us here?
1: It's a crisis which is man-made. This man-made dish put us at a very dire state. This is a problem when you make environmental policy more about politics than results. The government wants to control the food, so we don't eat meat, but we eat insects.
2: We can put insects in all of us.
4: So, this right here is sort of a future food There's a group of
1: people that is thinking they do everything good for nature. And they are against farmers. And why? I don't know.
4: Because they think we do everything
2: wrong.
4: We are headed into a time of very significant food shortages. Many millions of people are going to find themselves starving. And that is simply unnecessary. the police barricades and pushing the riot police back.
1: People in Sri Lanka rioted because in one year, the country slipped into extreme poverty. A big reason is because Sri Lanka's government fell under the influence of the world's hardcore environmentalists. The green generation has risen up. We must go from harming our planet to healing it. Many governments have embraced the idea that pure nature is best. For most of our history, humans lived in harmony with nature. But we have shattered that balance.
4: Creating a climate catastrophe.
0: We need the countries to work together.
1: UN officials now say the climate crisis requires countries to cut nitrogen waste.
4: There is only one Earth.
1: Because chemical fertilizers give off nitrogen emissions. Activists applauded when Sri Lanka decided to become
3: the first organic-only economy in the world.
1: The country's president banned all synthetic fertilizers. Banned. We Americans paid little attention, but media in the area saw the effects. They were forced to go organic overnight, and their production has plummeted since. Suddenly, the same farms produced much less food. Food prices rose
2: 80%. Come on, like that?
1: that sparked these protests.
0: They want the whole political class
4: to leave.
1: The protesters stormed into the president's mansion. The president resigned the next day. It turns out that people need chemical fertilizers. Modern chemicals, in most cases, are pretty good. Of course they are. Michael Schellenberger, once named one of Time Magazine's heroes of the environment, now says today's green dogma would lead to mass starvation.
4: We could only support two to three billion people on Earth if we just relied on natural fertilizers like manure. There's 8 billion people. Why can't we make more organic manure? That takes twice as much land just to produce all the cows that you need the manure from. Mm. So synthetic fertilizers are a friend to saving nature because they reduce how much land we need. Now the environmental purists are making excuses for Sri Lanka.
1: They say it's ridiculous to single out the fertilizer ban as the cause, as Schellenberger does.
4: I don't think it's ridiculous to point out there was agricultural collapse after they banned fertilizers.
1: Organics advocates made this video saying
3: the country needed time to change and adjust to the organic way of farming.
4: You might be able to become poorer over five or 10 years rather than over six months, but the result is going to be the same either way. There were other causes of the problems, higher oil prices, COVID, other stuff happened. But those same problems affected other countries where the economies did not collapse. What made the difference in Sri Lanka was its fertilizer ban.
1: But environmentalists are right to be concerned about chemical fertilizers. The nitrous oxide they emit is a greenhouse gas. And when nitrogen runs off into waterways, it can create... Dead zones where fish and other aquatic species are unable to survive.
4: Absolutely. We should be concerned. But that's best dealt with through a gradual process of farmers getting better at applying the fertilizer to their crops. Farmers are already doing that.
0: She spends more than $100,000 a year on manufactured fertilizer.
4: Since
1: fertilizer is expensive... Farmers have an incentive to make sure it's not wasted as pollution.
4: We want to make sure we get that fertilizer to the plant. We know that you can significantly reduce pollution while producing the same amount of food. In the Netherlands. They reduced fertilizer pollution by 70%.
1: But now Dutch farmers are protesting because their government now wants so much more reduction that thousands of farms would have to shut down.
4: It's out of control. It's completely unnecessary. We have to get to 100% renewable energy.
1: We see the same extremism with ideas like the Green New Deal.
4: We have to get to 100% renewable energy. We're in the worst energy crisis in 50 years.
0: Energy prices going from record to record.
4: And yet here we are, governments are trying to make energy more scarce and expensive. European power plants are desperately trying to buy coal because wind energy hasn't performed It's totally insane. There's no other word for it. This
1: pursuit of a
4: chemical-free
1: world is insane. Modern technologies like chemical fertilizer make people's lives better. Stopping that progress brings disaster.
3: With poverty soaring, one in five Sri Lankans are going hungry. People
2: have no gas to cook. People have no money to buy food. So this has to stop.
1: Sri Lanka today, the world tomorrow... Let's hope the hardcore environmental left doesn't get its way.
4: One more. Last week, down in Memphis, Tennessee, the annual Freedom Fest event was held. This is the libertarian event that's held every year. And we were fortunate enough to host a phenomenal panel discussion at this event centered around the topic of the global war on farmers, as well as the push to get insect and synthetic meat to replace the protein in all of our diets. Now, the panel discussion was the result of a year-long documentary that we've been working on. It's called No Farmers, No Food. And for that documentary, we quite literally flew around the world in order to expose this globalist agenda that really has the potential to cripple all of our civil liberties. Now, there's a famous quote that says, whoever controls the food supply controls the people. And all warlords in history knew that fact.
0: You know what? We'll stop right there because we've got about 15 minutes. We'll pick up on that video next week. Let me show you this one more. That, that one video, this is a sampling. And, and Now, think about this, folks. How many of you took science when you were in junior high and high school? Okay, how many of you are at least 50? So you had a reasonable education. Okay. What is photosynthesis? Takes the CO2 and turns it in oxygen. Is that a good thing? We're told that CO2 is, is what is a poisonous, uh, is a poison gas. Not. Nah, it's plant food. You got these knuckleheads, a stealth effort, buying up hundreds of millions of acres of trees to destroy all the trees and bury them for the sake of climate change. Now let me just ask you, if CO2 is the problem, how is this going to possibly help the CO2 in the atmosphere? It's just crazy. It's insane. All of these moves are intentional. I I remember talking with our friend Trevor Loudon about this months ago, because I didn't understand why in the world, every time a communist take over, they always starve the people initially. And he had one idea, and I had another idea, and I think they both are correct. If you want to rip, if you want to turn man into an animal, which by the way is what Darwin's all about, survival of the fittest, whereas we have been taught, love your neighbor, and love your neighbor as yourself, turn the other cheek, fastest way to turn man from that biblical gracious servant worldview, and to turn him into, I will do anything to survive. Is through starvation, for you will lie and steal and cheat, and your your base animal instincts will come out for survival. Second, when the government controls the food, then they control you, and you become absolutely dependent on the government. And in every situation, you see mass starvation. I, I shared with you some of these. When I look down, when I look down the the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And quite frankly, what's, I came to this over a decade ago, looking back at my notes. I, I saw a typical communist takeover historically. Only this one won't be one country, it will be global in scope. Begin with this smooth-talking super politician, this, this Lenin or this Castro or this Obama type of, of character that promises peace. It'll then disarm vast portions of the population to where they can be controlled. And then, as you've seen, these people really believe that for a sustainable planet, we must reduce the world's population. We did a podcast this week with Yuval Noah Harari on it. He's the mad scientist, right-hand man of Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum. He's talking about through the use of AI we will have a significant use uh, percentage of the population that he beca- that he defines as useless. And if they can't be re-educated, then what do you do with useless people? What did Hitler do with use- those that he defined as useless? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, all of this is really going on right now. In fact, it was last week that some of these videos were... Were cut at the World Economic Forum. Now, here's some good news. Everybody in America now is wide awake, or a vast majority of our population is. We've got great pushback. There's a lot of good things going on. And as you've heard me say before, rapture, come on, I'm ready to go. Revival, I'm good with that too, and a restoration of the blessings of liberty. The only thing that I, I, I do not want to see happen is I do not want to see my children and grandchildren have to live their lives under a tyrant government where they face uh, persecution and even martyrdom because of their faith. So that is the one thing that is off the table. I'll show you one of those Harare videos next week, but it ties in with all of this. You can see this systematically, this global Marxist takeover which will be a part of the the tribulation, uh, resulting in the deaths uh, eventually of half the world's population. We see here 25% of the world's population will die at the fifth seal. And then we see another third of the world's population will die in the trumpet judgment. You do the math on those, and that's 50%. Let's say we have 7.5 billion people right now. Let's say that 1 billion people are taken in the rapture. 6.5 billion are left on planet Earth. 50% or approximately 3.25 billion will die over a 7-year period. Now think about that for a moment. You can't grasp that number. I mean, we we talked about, uh, they they were throwing numbers around like one million died from COVID, and it was nonstop news. Imagine three and a half billion people dying over the course of seven years. This is a time of such great tribulation, such as the world has never before seen. That's what Jesus said. That's what it will be.